I'm going to keep going on our journey this morning through uh, this series that we're called Seeking a King through the book of First Samuel. And so as you're going there, uh, let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you uh, that you're here with us. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather in the name of our Savior, Jesus. And Jesus, we just uh, look to you to set our hearts upon you and your kingdom uh, this morning, Lord, to start our week just outright, being with your people, Lord, singing your praise, gathering around your word. And Lord, we just pray that your spirit would speak to each heart this morning, each mind, God, that we would be challenged by the things that we hear, that we would be corrected if we need correction, that we would be rebuked if we need rebuke by your spirit, Lord, that we would find strength and encouragement if that's what we need this morning. So Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is God-breathed and useful for all of these things. And so Lord, we invite you to speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 1 Samuel 13, this really marks the beginning of Saul's kingship right here, okay? So, uh, you know, previously, Saul, as we've been being introduced to him and we've been watching the transition through the book of 1 Samuel for, from the prophet Samuel, the judge, into uh, the leadership of Saul, this new king, uh, this is really the clear mark of it, and we're going to be mainly looking from chapter 13 to chapter 15 at the kingship of Saul, getting a picture of this man and his leadership. And previously, yes, he's been designated king, he has been anointed king, but really to this point, he's kind of reigned and led the nation like a judge, not really that different from all the judges in the book of Judges or how Samuel's leadership has been, but now we're going to watch uh, the reign of Saul begin, his kingship, and this picture of his leadership. And it's interesting, as we, uh, as we get into the life of Saul, we're going to see this over the next few weeks, that the writer of Samuel is not so concerned with uh, Saul's successes. He wants to give us pictures of Saul's failures. And, uh, and so this is, I mean, what we're going to see is this, is this is not the king Israel needed. Saul is not a picture of the king that you and I need. Saul helps us get a sense of what we don't want and a, and a picture of what we rightly need in a, in a king. And so let me just remind you, uh, we looked last week, Blake took us through chapter 12 and we saw the retirement of, of Samuel. And prior to that, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, we saw Saul, when the people first gathered around him and he went to battle, he led them in battle against the Amorites and he battled a king by the name of Nahash. And that king's name, maybe, maybe you remember this, I don't know if you do, but that name means serpent. So he had a, a battle with the serpent, so to speak. And from the book of Genesis, you know, ever since we've been in, you know, we look at the book of Genesis, we know this, that the serpent was... Uh, Satan manifest and he came and deceived Adam and Eve and the book of Genesis prophesied this that eventually a king would come one would come who would crush the serpent's head and so the idea here is is we're being taken right back to the book of Genesis and we're looking for that one who will crush the serpent's head and I mean we know the end of the story here but the idea in this story is this is we're wondering this is this the king is this the one is this the man? And so spoiler alert this morning, but you know your Bible, so not that big of a spoiler. Uh, Saul is not the one who is going to crush the serpent's head. 
He is not the king that humanity needs. He is not the redeemer of Israel. He is not the redeemer of humanity. And that is what we want to see about this guy, Saul. Saul is a man of the flesh. Saul is like the first Adam from the book of Genesis. Saul is a picture of the fleshly man. Saul is a picture of us, of our humanity. And so let's, let's read about this and find out what happens here as his kingship begins. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So again, this chapter begins by telling us that this is the real beginning of Saul's kingship and of his reign. Before this, he was just this designated king, anointed, but he reigned in the style of an ordained judge, and he was, he was empowered at different times by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God would come upon him, and he led that victorious battle against Nahash and the Amorites. But from here on in, he is truly ruling as king. And a year has gone by uh, from the time that he was anointed king, and his role has been established, and now he's settling into it, and he is establishing for Israel a standing army. To this point in time, they haven't had a standing army. These are not reserve troops. This is not an army on call. These are full-time soldiers. He's got 3,000 of them, and Israel has not had them to this point. So this is the formation of the Israeli army, so to speak. Now, back in chapter 11... When he was first anointed king and the Amorites came and attacked in the north, or sorry, to the, to the east actually, um, 300,000 men had volunteered to follow Saul for Samuel chapter 11. And they followed him in battle against Nahash. But after all of that, as his, as his kingship is settling here and, and, and being established, he chooses only 3,000 men and he divides them between himself and this man, Jonathan, who does, the text doesn't tell us, but we're going to find out that Jonathan is his son. And I read that and I, and I, I think this, uh, you know, what is going on here? Because throughout the book of Samuel and throughout the leadership of the prophet Samuel, God had actually driven the Philistines out of the land. Remember that whole scene back with the ark? When the Philistines captured the ark and that whole thing went down. I mean, the Philistines have not been in the picture ever since. They have been out of the book of Samuel. They have not been present. But now, as Samuel's leadership is fading off into the sunset and Saul comes into the forefront, the Philistines are back on the scene. And again, they are a strong group of people. But the people of Israel have had peace to this point. So now the Philistines are strong again, and so Saul chooses 3,000 to form a standing army, and we should question what is going on here. 
I'm going to keep saying that. We should question what is going on here throughout this text. The people of Israel wanted a king like the other nations to lead them. They wanted a king who would lead them into battle. They wanted a king who would lead their army like other nations had. But what's strange to me is this, is we're going to see this, that it turns out that Saul is not the one initiating battles. It's this man, Jonathan, his son. Jonathan is the one who initiates engagement with the enemy. Now, the Philistines, they live to the west on the, on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea in the, the Gaza Strip, what today is the Gaza Strip. They had the five cities in that area, and they had reestablished their position in Israel. And what they had done is this, is they had formed outposts into the land of Israel where the, the, the nation of Israel lived, and they had these small military camps. And what they would do is this, is they maintained a position in Israeli land so that they could see what was going on so that they could be prepared and they could communicate to their army back home should there be any sort of flare-ups, uprising, then they could organize the Philistine army and send them in. And so these outposts were like positions of surveillance to ensure that Israel didn't have any surprise attack. But here now, Saul is beginning to form an army. And there was an outpost a Philistine outpost at Geba. So Jonathan, who's introduced to us in verse 2, again, we're not told that he's, we're actually not told that he's Saul's son until verse 16. Um, and by the time actually we find out that he's Saul's son, we know this, that he's not going to be the man that's going to inherit the throne of Israel. Before we're even told that he's the son, we know this, he's not going to get the throne. So Jonathan leads an attack against the Philistine outpost. Now, I love Jonathan. Jonathan's a guy we should love in Scripture. You know, if Saul's a guy, we should go, what is going on? Jonathan's a guy we should love. We, we find out that, that he's a man who's brave. He's, he is the, God gives him victory. When he initiates conflict with the enemy, Jonathan is a man that God blesses and gives victory. He is a man of action. He's a man of good character. We like this guy. And so Jonathan initiates and has a little battle with this outpost, and he defeats this Philistine outpost, him and his thousand men. But what's crazy is Saul claims the victory. Saul claims the victory for himself. It was his son's victory. Not uncommon, of course, for a king to, when his armies went out, to claim the victory as his own, but everyone knew this. This was actually not Saul's victory. This was Jonathan and Jonathan's men's victory. Now, I was thinking about this, because as a father, you know, I take great pride in my kids. Don't you, as a parent, you take great pride in your children. You, like, rejoice in their accomplishments and the things that they do. You're like, wow, they, they did this. And you, you know, parents, we brag on our kids. Our, well, my kid did this, and my kid did that, and they're doing this. And, and we, we're proud of that, proud of their accomplishments, proud to brag on our children. But this is not what Saul is doing. This guy isn't like, hey, did you hear what my son Jonathan did? Man, he took those Philistines. He's going, no, this is my victory. He's stealing it from his son. He's taking the credit for the accomplishment that was not his own. And so we're getting, we're just going to keep getting insight into the pride of this man that he's, he's messed up. We're just going to get more and more of a sense that things are not right with this man, Saul. So Jonathan gets the victory. 
Saul steals the credit, and he calls together the army. He calls together more of an army. He's got his 3,000 men, but now he wants to pull back the 300,000. And he blows the trumpet, and it says this, let all the Hebrews hear. That's what he announced, which is weird. Again, I want to point this out. This is weird. Let all the Hebrews hear? Why is he calling them Hebrews? Why doesn't he say, let all Israel hear? God has given my son Jonathan a victory. Doesn't say that. He steals the credit for himself. And he doesn't say, let all Israel hear. He says, let all the Hebrews hear. In scripture, whenever Israel is called by that name Hebrew, it's, it's usually typically used by foreigners speaking of the Jews. Like Pharaoh, if you go to the book of Exodus, Pharaoh did not refer to Israel as Israel. He called them the Hebrews. When they were enslaved to him, he referred to them as Hebrews. And you get this sense in the scripture that this, or this impression that this term Hebrew is like, a, and it's in it's a term of contempt against the people of God. And I don't know why Saul would use that. Like, honestly, I actually don't have the answer. I just think it's weird. Why would he do that? And again, I think it's, you know, insight into the pride of this man that he was talking down to the people, this king. He wasn't one of them. He was talking down to them. And the, and the fact that Israel was gathering an army as he, once he put out the word, as they, as they began to gather their armory, it put the Philistines on alert. They had their outposts. They were monitoring the situation. And so this is the beginning of Israel's war with the Philistines, and it's going to go on for decades. And they're not going to be liberated until David comes. They'll never be liberated under the leadership of Saul. It's not until David comes that they're going to be free from the Philistines. And so let's read on verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. This army is impressive. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth Aven. Now again, Michmash is where Saul is with his 2,000 troops. 2,000, he's called together the army, but the Philistines have gathered 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and an army that cannot be numbered. It is like the author says, it is like the sand of the seashore. That's a big army, wouldn't you say? And, and the author's choice of words here, again, is interesting. The sand on the seashore? We know that means an innumerable number. And it's crazy because it's, it's like a slap against Israel, so to speak, because God had promised Abraham that his descendants would be like what? The sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. Abraham, I'll bless you. I will give you the land of Canaan, and you will go in there, and your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore. They will be an innumerable people. And here the same expression is being used, not for Israel, being used against them, against them to describe the army of the Philistines. And see, Saul wouldn't finish putting down this Philistine army. It's going to be David who will. So verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for, they were hard, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes 
and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of God and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. So this is Israel is on the run. <laughs> They're called Hebrews again. This, is, this harkens right back to slavery in the land of Egypt. They're, they're not standing up in the face of the enemy. They are fleeing and hiding and finding every, putting every physical barrier between themselves and the Philistines that they can. They're even going so far as to put a river between them. Like head east and get the Jordan between us and the enemy. See, this King Saul has not provided confidence in the face of the enemy. You know, actually, I was thinking about it. I can't think of a time under the leadership of David, when David comes on the scene, I can't think of a single time when the nation cowered in such a way. But at the beginning of Saul's leadership, this is what they're doing. They're cowering. Cowering. And it reminds me of the battle that happens in you and I, you know, with serving Jesus and serving the flesh. It's like, when I am living for the flesh and the enemy comes and puts his face in front of me and confronts me, I tell you, I cower. I shake. I, I, I go into hiding. But when, when, when our hearts are fixed on our King, Christ Jesus, boy, there's confidence in the face of hardship, isn't there? There's, there's hope in the midst of whatever we're going through. You know, as the scripture says, that we have not been given a, a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. It's amazing that when your heart is fixed on Christ, your David, you can stand up in the face of a lot of different things. But when your heart is fixed on the flesh, you run like Israel runs. Now verse 8 says of Saul, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But when Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him, uh, actually, even before I read on here, it, it just seems that Saul and Samuel had some sort of agreement. Text doesn't tell us what it was. Samuel was going to come after a period of time to meet them at Gilgal. They were going to offer a sacrifice and seek the Lord for his blessing over the army and the battle. But at the expected time, Samuel doesn't arrive. He wasn't there. And so those who are with Saul continue to scatter. Let's read on. So verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So Samuel's supposed to come and do this, but because he's late, uh, Saul takes the responsibility himself to offer this burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel had told him on some sort of level, wait seven days and then I'll offer the offering and then you can engage the enemy in battle. And Saul here is taking this perspective, well, my troops are fleeing, they're leaving, I've got to do something. So he assumes the role of a priest. He's not a priest, he's a king, but he assumes the role of a priest and he offers the sacrifice to the Lord himself rather than waiting for Samuel. And he offers that sacrifice so his troops won't flee and so that he can engage the enemy in battle. Now, now this was unlawful. From the word of God, we need to know this, that he was not authorized to bring this sacrifice before the Lord. This was the duty and the role of a priest. God had established the priesthood in Israel, and that was their job, their responsibility to mediate before God for the people of Israel. 
And so what Saul does here is unlawful. It reminds me of another story in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 of a good, righteous king by the name of Uzziah. And Uzziah later on in his reign made a decision that he would go in, the scripture actually calls that Uzziah's pride, that he would go into the temple of the Lord and he himself would offer a sacrifice. And so he determined to go into the house of the Lord, into the Holy of Holies, and to offer this sacrifice. And as he did, the priests and the Levites, they tried to constrain him. And he, he pushed them off, and the king went into the presence of the Lord, and the priests followed him in. And if you know the story, uh, it, uh, it's a crazy story. If you don't know it, I encourage you to check out Second Chronicles chapter 26, because he went into the presence of the Lord, and leprosy began to just break out on his face. And the priests grabbed him and they took him out of the presence of the Lord. And Uzziah spent the rest of his days living in isolation as a leper. Because as a king, he ignored the law of God and he went in to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. So here's Saul. He's doing the same thing in his pride. He's presuming this upon himself. This is work of the flesh. He's going to make it happen. Rather than depend upon the Lord, rather than depend upon God's timing, rather than depend upon uh, that who was supposed to do the job, he took it upon himself. And, and this is just a reminder of the importance of us, you know, waiting on the Lord. Wait for the Lord. You know, Scripture instructs us that so much. And, and often when we're waiting for the Lord, we get into a panic. Does that happen to you? It's like, Lord, I thought you were going to act and work in this situation. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And you know, we always say this, like, you know, the Lord is never late. He's always on time. It's just not usually on my time schedule or on your time schedule. And there is an importance of waiting that, that is an act of maturity. It's an act of trust. It is an act of faith to say, Lord, you know, I recognize I could force this situation. I could push. I could bulldoze this but I haven't got clarity from you. So I need to wait. Saul does not do that. He pushes forward here. Now, verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Well, I don't imagine much time had passed. It doesn't take that long to make a burnt offering. So it's not like Samuel didn't show up. It's like he's 30 minutes late. Okay, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the days appointed. Like, that's a lie right there. Samuel is here. He's present. He showed up. When I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would establish your kingdom over Israel forever. But now... Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart 
And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, crazy. It's like, here we are. We're right at the beginning of his kingship. This just started. And he has already failed to the point where the Lord says through the prophet, this kingship, your rule is not going to last. It is not going to be handed off to your son, Jonathan. It is not going to be handed down from generation to generation. What have you done? You have done a foolish thing, Samuel says. And as a result of Saul's impatience and his disobedience, the kingdom will be taken from his family. And Samuel confronts him with this question, what have you done? <laughs> For me, that like echoes the book of Genesis. Like remember Adam and Eve and standing there before uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and partaking in that fruit and then coming to their senses, you know, hiding themselves from the Lord. And the Lord, the book of Genesis tells us, came walking through the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day looking for Adam. And God's question to Adam was this, where are you, Adam? Where are you? And when Adam responded, he said, Lord, this woman you gave me, she was deceived and she partook. And, and Adam, like, he blames the serpent and he blames his wife. He didn't own his responsibility. He made excuses. Well, Saul is exactly the same. Samuel says, where, what have you done? And Saul just begins to give the excuses. Or it reminds me of Moses with Aaron. Remember when Moses went up Mount Carmel and he received the Ten Commandments? Meanwhile, down at the foot of the mountain, while Moses was up there for 40 days, the people of Israel said to Aaron, we don't know what has happened to this man, Moses. And so Moses, uh, Aaron says, uh, give me your gold earrings. And so they gave him all of his gold, their gold earrings. And Aaron participated in the fashioning of the golden calf. And he led the children of Israel in total idolatry against the Lord. And, and Moses comes down the mountain and says, Aaron, what, what is going on? And Aaron's like, I don't know. You know, we just threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. And he blames the people and he blames everything else besides taking responsibility for himself. Here's Saul. Saul blames the men, the army for leaving. Saul blames Samuel for being late. I had to do something. He said, I was forced to do it. I forced myself. And that was insincere. That's an insincere answer. He was, he was blaming, he laid the blame on his circumstances. My circumstances forced my hand, so I had no choice but to do this. I didn't want to do it. I couldn't help it. There was nothing I could do. The Philistines were coming. I can hear this in myself, can't you? I couldn't help it, Lord, you know, like... It was just my circumstances, so I just had to do it. it. Went this direction or that direction. And I want to remind you that unbelief and impatience are marks of spiritual immaturity in our lives. God is greater than circumstances. God is greater than the enemy. And what the word of God would always instruct us to do is 
to obey God. And in our flesh, we always need to be resisting attempts to make it happen. That's hard for us. If you're a man of action or a woman of action, it's hard to resist attempts to make things happen. The scripture always tells us this, wait for the Lord. Wait for him. He'll lead us. He'll guide us. And so what we are quickly learning about Saul is that this king is not God's king. This king is not the new Adam. He's not the new Adam who's going to crush the serpent's head. He's not that king who's going to crush the serpent's head. This is Adam number one revisited. And I think, you know, for us, we have to be cautious of thinking that we know better than God. That we know what should be done. That we would operate how we would wish rather than do what God wants us to do. And when we operate how we wish rather than waiting for the Lord, I mean, that is really the definition of pride and disobedience. And that's what we're seeing in this guy. And here's Saul. This is Israel's start with this new king. But it's devolving really fast. Uh, Saul is floundering. He's unsuccessful. And what we are seeing is that the disobedience and unbelief of all humanity is in Saul. You and I are in Saul, so to speak. He is a picture of the fleshly man. Adam has not changed. You and I have not changed. This was the king Israel had asked for, but it was not the king they needed. He didn't change their hearts. Instead, we see he's just one of them. And see, you and I, we need a king who will not only rescue us from our enemies, but we need a king who will rescue us from ourselves. That king is Jesus. We need a king who will take on sin and liberate us from our slavery to our sinful desires. We need a king who will obey God in every circumstance, even when he's under pressure. Believe me, Jesus faced pressure, didn't he? He was crushed under the weight of what God was doing. But he obeyed. He obeyed in every unfavorable circumstance. He trusted. He was obedient. That's Jesus, our king. Saul is not that man. That's what this author wants us to see. Saul is not that man. So his kingdom will not endure. His kingdom will be given to a man after his own heart, after God's own heart. And I have to say, you know, when I read Saul, I, I, I've said this before, I always say this when I'm talking about Saul. To me, is like such a tragic character. I put myself in his shoes. <laughs> I actually have sympathy for Saul. I don't know about you. Do you feel that when you read this story? I have like sympathy for this guy. He has an army that is like fleeing. He's like hemorrhaging losses of soldiers. It's not a good thing for any commander. He doesn't know what to do. He's totally in the flesh, so he tries to make stuff happen. And Samuel says, you've acted like a fool. That was foolish. It's interesting, you know, that's like not calling him an idiot. He doesn't say, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. 
doesn't say that. He says, that was foolish. Psalm 14 verse 1 says this, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. See, the fool, according to Scripture, the fool is one who lives as though God doesn't exist. Or the fool is one who lives as though God does not matter. And see, Saul's problem was that he acted in a way that communicated he did not believe that God would act. He didn't keep the Lord's command because he didn't really, truly trust the Lord. So Samuel says, you've been a fool. And the kingdom will be given to another man, a man after his own heart. Often we think of that and think, a man after God's heart, who is that for us in Scripture? It's David, right? King David. David is the picture of a man after God's heart. We know this. It's often shocking to think that about David because you're like, yeah, but yeah, David did lots of great stuff, but David sucked. <laughs> I mean, David did a lot of bad stuff too, like an adulterer and all his wives and all the different things that he was up to. I mean, he did some bad stuff. How is he the man after God's own heart? But it's interesting here, this, in 1 Samuel 13, the expression, a man after God's own heart, is not an expression of David's godliness. I want you to catch this. This is important. That expression, a man after God's own heart, is not an expression of David's godliness. It's not an expression of a future king's godliness. It's an expression of God's sovereign choice. It's talking about the place David will have in the heart of God. Rather than the place, we often think this, we say a man after God's heart. We say that, that's because that man has God in his heart. But what it actually means is this, is that God has that man in his heart. We flip it around. You know, we'd say, well, what, what is it to have a heart after God? That's a good question, isn't it? What is it to have a heart after the things of God? To me, that means like my affections, the center of my life is fixed on the Lord. It's to, have a, it's to let him have my heart. And I would actually say that when we say a, a man after God's own heart, it means this, to let him have your heart and allow him to make it as he pleases. You know, often we pray this, God, give me a heart after you. That's a good prayer. Not slamming that prayer whatsoever. That's a good prayer, isn't it? But maybe a better prayer is this, God, set your heart on me. Lord, I ask you to set your heart on me. See, that's what Dave, that was what was different about David. David was God's choice. Saul was the people's choice. The Lord set his heart on David. David was a man after God's heart, not because of what David did. This is key to David's life. It's not about what David did. It's not because of what David did. Not because of who David was, but because David understood what God did for him. 
David understood what God did for him. And David reflected on that. When we read the Psalms of David, we don't say, oh, here's David talking about how awesome his heart is for God. David reflects on the heart of God to him. I sinned against you, Lord. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David was not fixed on his own heart. He was fixed on the heart of God. You know, in the story of David, the, the, the key chapter to the story of David and David's kingship is 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's the story when the Lord forms his covenant with David and he says to David, one of your descendants will always sit on the throne of Israel for eternity. And Jesus came through that line. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David gives a prayer to the Lord of thanksgiving. And he says this. It's going to come on the screen in 2 Samuel 7 verse 21. I want you to see this. David says to the Lord, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. This is the exact same expression. David says, it's not because of my heart, Lord. It's because of your heart. You've set your affections on me, and you chose me. You're the one who brought the greatness. That same phrase Samuel used when he said the kingdom would be taken from Saul, David used it and was exalted He was great because of what was in God's heart. Remember that name, Saul? It actually means asked for. Here's the king you asked for. He's the king the people asked for. He's the people's choice. And his reign is a failure. David is going to be the heart of God. David is going to be God's choice. And from his covenant with God, through David's royal dynasty, the new Adam will come, the one who will crush the serpent's head. Now verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. That's not good. Okay? 300,000 in chapter 11. Now he's down to 600 men, even though he'd chosen 3,000. They've deserted him. Meanwhile, verse 16, Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. The company, one company turned toward Orpah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam, toward the wilderness. The Philistines here are wreaking havoc. The, the language of, the Hebrew language actually expresses this. It's like a river fording and the water going. This is what the army was doing. Totally in control of Israel. Israel totally controlled in their own territory. The people had asked for a king like the other nations and look at the shape they're in and how quickly it happened. Now verse 19. 
There was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, let the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. Or sorry, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. Now, Saul is powerless, and it's emphasized by this. They've got no weapons. They've got no weapons. The Philistines had cornered the market on blacksmiths. Okay? It wasn't a good investment in those days. So when the Philistines controlled the country, they would not allow the men of Israel to have swords. So when the time came to sharpen your plow, to sharpen your axe, whatever it is, you had to go to Philistine territory and pay money for that to happen. And you know what? This is the way of the enemy right here. The enemy wants to take away the sword. This one. This sword. The enemy will say to you this, well, you could still farm. You can still do your work. You can provide for your family. I'll give you the instruments you need to succeed, but I don't want you to have the sword. John Corson said this, and I, I, I just like this, so I wanted to repeat what he said. He said this, self-help and advice books fill the shelves of many who won't open the sword of the word. Because Satan has tricked them into thinking they don't need it. I suggest, however, that the 66 books, the 66 book library you hold in your hands contains enough material to keep you busy studying for the rest of your life. You, you know, I, I would, wouldn't you say that's true? Like, I would just say this. Like, at this point in my life, I would think that I would have a pretty good handle on this thing. I don't. I keep finding this, that I don't know the word of God well enough. I forget, like my memory is, I think about like walk through the Bible we've gone through on Wednesday nights through all 66 books. And I go, wow, yeah, let's, I don't know, pick a book, go to Leviticus and tell me what Leviticus is about. I'm like, I can't break, I don't know the word of God like I should know the word of God. But I know this, that the word of God helps me in faith, helps me with my family, teaches me how to handle my finances. It directs my future. It's like everything I need is right here, leads me to Jesus. The enemy would just like to take that away all the time. He says, you can have this tool. Try this. Try this out. What we need is the sword of God's word. Verse 22. So on that day of the battle... There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So there is the enemy. The enemy has come right into the territory of God's people. This is going to be a disaster. <laughs> That's what we want to see in Saul. He's not the king in whom we put our hope. He's a picture of the flesh. I'm going to keep saying that over these weeks. He is a picture of your flesh. He is a picture of my flesh. And what we need to do in our hearts is say to the Lord, 
God, I ask you to set your heart upon me. Jesus, you're my king. Jesus, I confess you as king. I say of you, Jesus, you are king. Set your heart on me and give me a heart after the things of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible spiritual pictures that are here for us in Saul. Lord, we have sympathy for him because we see ourselves in Saul. We're ones to rush ahead and act in pride and steal glory and credit and all these things. And Lord, we need you to just change our hearts. God, I ask that you would set your hearts upon us. Lord, I pray that for every person here, God, that, that prayer. Would you set your heart on them? Lord, I pray that deep in our own soul and our spirit, that we would know that we're men and women whom you have set your heart upon. We thank you, Lord, that that means this, that it's, it's not about us having perfect, righteous action. It's not about what we do. It's about what you've done. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be men and women like David who glory in Christ, who glory in what you've done. Thank you, Lord, that you're greater than our circumstance. Thank you, Lord, that you're greater than anything we face. Lord, help us to be patient men and women who wait on God to act. We trust you, Lord. And we say to you, Jesus, this morning, you are my king. Lord, may your blessing and your grace be upon your people this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys this morning. Thanks for worshiping with us. And uh, we're here for prayer tonight. If you get a chance to join us, 7 o'clock, all right? God bless. Have a great Sunday.